Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and I welcome you to another weekly broadcast. We'll be talking about protection from evil, being that we're about to enter into Passover, which will be Friday night. Passover, of course, is perhaps the first documented story of institutionalized discrimination and racism, where an entire nation rose up on a nation that was, they were the host on a nation that was uh, living there, the Jewish people, enslaved them and perpetrated, as I said, the first documented genocide and slavery and bondage, which has become, of course, a legend and a story of its own for generations to come. We tell the story every year. So there's so many different angles. I thought it were appropriate to talk about protection from evil. You know, the word evil is so used, is so overused. People use it in personal terms, in collective terms, on politicians, on governments, on employees, on employers. But step back for a moment and let's ask the question, what does the word evil mean? What is evil? What exactly is that? Is uh, evil something that is inherent or something that's man-made, like injustices that people perpetrate on one another. So, of course, philosophers and theologians and many have weighed in to ask that big question, what evil is, and whether it actually exists. Is it a subjective thing, meaning in the eyes of the beholder? For one person, something is evil, for another it may not be. Or is there something objective about it? And obviously, without defining what evil is, it's very difficult to talk about protecting oneself from evil. So that's what we'll be discussing. We'll try to enter into the belly of the beast, into the abyss, and try to understand this word. You know, we talk about good and evil, good choices, bad choices. So that is the topic, and I hope we can come away with a... um, deeper understanding, but not just a philosophical understanding, but also an approach, how to deal with the challenges in our lives and how to come out not only unscathed, but actually stronger than ever. So in simple terms, even on a childish level, you ask somebody, what is good and evil? They'll say, some people will say good is when it helps people, it helps society, it helps the world, and evil is when it destroys, when it undermines when it's destructive. And other people, may, may, you may use the terms that selfishness, when we talk about just dealing with myself and stepping on everyone else, me, 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 survival of the fittest, that may not be evil per se, but it can lead to evil. Because when you're thinking only about yourself, not the good of another or the good of the cause, the greater good, that leads to evil acts. So evil in that context is a very much of a man-made thing, Meaning, it's what people do to each other when they're in a mode of either self-absorption, self-interest, selfishness, narcissism, and um, not, cons- not considering anyone else. Or in the first, de- trans- inter- first interpret definition, when you do things that are destructive. What does destructive mean? Killing, hurting, maiming, compromising, abusing. So this is what many people would define as evil. And now, obviously is the big argument that many will say is, one second, how do I know what is evil? Well, one person says is abuse, and another person may say is not. 
And if it's mutual consent, you could say, hey, maybe it's not a bad thing. So is there such a thing as absolutely evil act? I think many of us would agree. Not all, but many would agree that what the Nazis did during World War II, the Holocaust, choosing innocent men, women, and children for no other reason except their race or their religion and killing them mercilessly would be considered an evil act. The fact, however, is that there are hundreds, there were millions and millions of Germans that participated, either directly or indirectly, and it's happened not only there, in other countries as well. And they find all kinds of justifications. They actually justify it as being helping the human race. Now, of course, that's grotesque and obscene to us, but you could see that you could have also disagreement on such a fundamental matter. You'll say the child is innocent, but the child may grow up and become my enemy. The child is corrupt, coming from mutant genes, whatever. I'm not even going to go into it. I don't want to give it the credence of justification. But it's not as black and white as easy. There, we can say we can agree. But what about when, let's say, war is fought? You know, Gandhi-like approach was you never fight violence with violence. You're always with peace. But the fact is, most of the world, including the, the civil world, says war is the last resort, but if you have to call it a war, self-defense, then, ju- well, then the killing is justifiable. Not that we want it, but there's no choice because you have to kill the enemy before they kill you. So in regular circumstances, that would be called evil killing because it's destructive, but because it's for a greater good or it's to protect for a greater good or to protect the innocent against people that you feel are evil, and they think they're not evil, of course, then certain things are justified. My point is that it gets more complicated as you start looking deeper into it. So when we throw out the word evil, we have to be careful what we mean. Now, let's go back to the question, is anything inherently evil? Is there any fiber of existence, any mineral, any entity, any organism that is evil? The fact that, for example, there are predators in the wild, or in the water. That's part of natural balance. As a matter of fact, if they didn't do their predating, is that a word? If they didn't do their killing, there would be an imbalance in the population of a species that can then consume and destroy much more than if they are kept at bay through their predators. So there's a balance. As we know, there's a lot more vegetation in this world than there are animals. Animals eat vegetation. So the more something is consumed, the more, well, I would say the more it multiplies. And if it wasn't consumed, the vegetation would not be kept, could could create an imbalance. Same thing with different species. Certain larger predators, and there's animals that are multiplying much larger numbers. If there were no predators, we know what could happen. And we've seen it. It It unbalances the whole natural cycle, and it creates much more problems than had there been no predators. So when you see an animal being a prey, being caught, of course, of course it's, it's sad to see, it's painful to see, blood being shed, but it's part of the balance. Okay, so we could say in the animal kingdom, it's not their choice, it's the way nature keeps it balanced. <clears throat> like I've talked about many times, natural disasters that we call natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes. The truth is, they're part of the balance of nature. If you didn't have them, the world would explode. An earthquake 
relieves the tension of the, the, the tectonic plates beneath the surface of the earth. Same thing with a volcano. There's a, it's, hurricanes, think of it like a vacuum cleaner that needs to clean out. Where does it become a disaster? When human beings are in its path. But the question is, where most of these natural events happen, you see I'm using the word event, we're not even naturally a place conducive for human beings to live. We, we drain swamps. We went in places that were not really necessarily places of human civilization. So I'm not challenging and criticizing people of doing that, but in many ways you could say a hurricane at sea is not, is, we don't call a natural disaster. So when you really think about it, in nature, nothing seems to be evil. It's evil if you misuse it the wrong way. But per se, everything has its purpose. They're poisonous mushrooms, and they're non-poisonous ones. If you don't eat it, then it's not evil. It has its purpose. The same thing with everything in the world. If you misuse something, it's like anything. You have a machine. You use it for the wrong purpose, it becomes a knife. Kitchen knife. Kitchen knife can cause damage. Can be used to hurt people. But a kitchen knife can also be used to cut food and to sustain us. So it's all how we use it. Per se itself doesn't have any inherent negative element to it. And yet we do find, we'll talk from the biblical point of view, some things are permitted and some things are prohibited. So one could say is you have to choose between, like it says, you're given two paths, the path of life, the path of death, the path of good, the path of evil. But if you think about it, it's not a path of evil until you, God forbid, do it. It's a path that you should be avoiding and refraining from. So in that sense, as long as you refrain from it, and you said, don't go down this path, it's just as much blessing as when someone says, go down this path. So again, it's not the path that's evil, it's whether you misuse it. So when something's prohibited, it says, do not hurt another person. If you don't hurt another person, you've, not, you've been warned, warned and guided and directed and educated. If you, if you transgress that, rule, that principle, then you, then you bring evil into the world. So the fact that some things are off limits or not supposed to be done or acted upon, it's like saying, use the knife for good purposes, don't use it for bad purposes. So again, it's not inherent until somebody takes it and uses it the wrong way, for not, for not, for what it was, not for what it was created. Simply, like, no different than machines or equipment or entities that were, that were, that were um, invented for one purpose, and if you use the wrong purpose, it can become a destructive force. You know, recently, in the last years, automobiles have been seen as a weapon. Why? An automobile has transformed the world for the better. But an automobile driven by a drunk driver or, driven, or, or due to an accident can also kill lives. So it suddenly it becomes a weapon, because when you're driving at that speed which was not possible when there was a bicycle or there was, um, or there was other, other vehicles. The faster it goes, the more, the more beneficial it is, the more destructive it can be. Think of a fire. Is fire good or bad? Without fire, without warmth, we would not have existence. But if the sun were a few miles closer to the earth, it can burn up the earth. If it, was too, it was farther, it would freeze the earth. So fire is all again how you use it. Use it properly, controlled, and harnessed. It is necessary for life. 
If not, it can be a consuming force that destroys. We know with fire, the terror that it drives in our hearts, a fire. Same thing with water. We cannot live without water. But a flood, where water is uncontrolled, can destroy. So in this context, when you say good and evil, you're not talking about an objective, this is good, this is evil. You're talking, it's objective, but it's subjective in context of how the human uses it. The bigger question, of course, then is, so how is it possible that a good God would create a world where there's a possibility for something to be used the wrong way? Remember, possibility. That's why there's an expression, God does not create evil. Evil does not come from above, it comes from below. Because everything has created for a purpose. It's only when you don't use it for the purpose, or you use it for the opposite for which it was given to you, that's when evil emerges. But how is that possible in the first place? How could even the possibility emerge from a God that is good and his plan is a good plan? So of course there's the concept of free will. Free will basically, basically requires that there be choice. And when there's choice, means we can choose to do the right thing or we can choose to do the wrong thing. But it goes deeper than that. The mystics explain, and I've discussed this a number of times in this class, the mystics explain that, <clears throat> that the possibility, the possibility is with an analogy. Think of a parent who hides from their child and hides well because they want their child to be ingenious enough. They want to elicit the ingenuity, ingenuity, <laughs> ingenuity of the child to find that parent. So it's like, in a sense, like a game, but more than a game. It's in order to challenge and provoke. But the parent concealed himself so well, the child looks and looks, and then gives up. He can't find the parent. This is a, let's, let's, let's analyze this. What do we have here? The purpose of the concealment was revelation. It was for the child to find the parent. And not only just revelation, but even a deeper revelation. Because when the parent was not hiding... The child didn't have to dig deeper and find deeper, greater, stronger resources to try to discover where that parent is hiding. So the purpose is not just revelation, but a deeper revelation. And what did it end up being? A nightmare. The child cannot find the parent because the parent was so good at hiding. In order to provoke, the, in order to elicit that the child should dig deeper and be more creative and more ingenious in finding the parent. And it ends up being when the child stops looking that this concealment, which was all meant to be a source of great revelation and great joy and a great reunion, has become distorted into becoming a source of distance and abandonment. That's how the Kabbalists explain this and discussed at length in Hasidic thought. Explaining the Simpsons, the, the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the great 15th century a uh, 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 Kabbalist and lived in Svas where he introduced the secret doctrine of the Tzimtzum, Seydat Tzimtzum. What is that? To explain how a reality like us can emerge if God is om- omnipotent and omnipresent. So how is it possible that there be another independent ego, an independent consciousness like ours? And many other such questions. So,
So the Barizal introduced this concept of Tzimtzum. It's really already alluded to and hinted to in the Zohar and earlier works. But the Arizal turned it into a doctrine and elaborated on it and explained that it came through a Tzimtzum. A Tzimtzum is a complete paradigm shift of the deepest sort. What kind of paradigm shift? That when here is the divine consciousness, and in a sense the divine consciousness so-called retreated, if you wish. Basically receded. Think of it like water receding and allowing space, conceptual space, for another independent consciousness. So from the perspective of the parent, nothing is concealed. The parent knows where they are. And they see the child. The child doesn't see the parent. From the perspective of a teacher, using a similar analogy, the teacher is concealing in order for the student to be able to be present because if the teacher would just reveal their entire brilliance, it would overwhelm and annihilate the student. So create space in order for the new consciousness, for an independent consciousness to emerge. So that symptom is in order to bring revelation and even a deeper revelation. But when misunderstood or not seen through and see symptom as an end in itself, which is the human choice, it can end up becoming the root of all problems or what we will call the root of all evil. It would be impossible for a human being to hurt another human being and to in general perpetrate any injustice or do anything that would be harmful, destructive, what we call evil, if we all sensed this divine unity that connects us all. Because then it would be like one organism. Is it possible one hand is going to hurt another hand? Of course not. The only reason it's possible is because there's a concealment and we don't see the inherent underlying unity within all of existence. So in that sense, think of it, it's, um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I wouldn't like to use the word amazing or fascinating because we're talking about negative things, but it's fascinating because the tremendous insight of how to understand the anatomy of dissecting the anatomy of evil, dissecting the anatomy of what drives it. And an excellent example for it. You know, just recently, last week, first time ever, a picture of a black hole. And everything is a lesson in our lives. What is a black hole? It actually defies a picture. Why? Because a black hole is, was predicted by Einstein and then proven time and again as a star whose gravitational pull is so powerful it doesn't, not doesn't, let anything, it doesn't even let light escape so we can't see it. So how do we know it's there? We know it's there because we see its effect on its environment, on its surroundings. So for example, you think of this. You're sitting in a room you have a piece of metal on the table, and the metal starts moving. You say, one second, what's causing it to move? The answer is there must be a magnet, a very strong magnet, behind, maybe behind the wall. Maybe you can't see, concealed. So you can't see the magnet, but you can see its effect. The gravitational pull the power of the power of a black hole affects the orbit of things that come near, near it and its path. And you keep studying different things you start recognizing, but through extrapolation you can realize, oh, there must be a tug coming that I cannot see. Think of sonar. Sonar. Sonar is bouncing sound waves on an object, let's say, under the water. And what comes back is you don't see the object, but you see it the bouncing off the object, and through that you can actually create an image, a picture. So a black hole is, a, is an excellent example for the tzimtzum. Obviously, it's not on a cosmic level, and it's not doesn't have all the philosophical.
What is taken over is the experience of the negative. But when you can step back and look at the, the reasons behind it, and I'm not dismissing the negative, something powerful we learn from it. And that is, we discover and learn that there's a power behind it that led on to this place. Why is that so important? You'll say, let's just eradicate the evil. The Nazis, whether it's on a collective basis or an individual basis. Or because you, make the, you eliminate the symptoms, but you haven't eliminated the root. And that's the powerful message that we learn from Passover and we learn from this Kabbalistic and mystical insight. That yes, of course we do everything to get rid of the symptoms. Of course we defend ourselves and we protect and we do whatever it takes. You lock your doors, you build armies in order to protect the innocent from the cruel, from people who have misunderstood ultimately and not only misunderstood, distorted the whole idea of free will and abusing it and exploiting it for their own selfish purposes. But we have a bigger goal. We want to eliminate the root of it all. And you eliminate the root of it all by recognizing that there's a darkness that we need to contend with. There's the darkness that we need to fight. And when you understand that the root of evil begins before the evil, which means before you and I may do something that hurts another person, even on a subtle level, it begins because we see ourselves as independent, as self-made, as self-contained. So the most important thing of all, again, I say do everything possible, we have to do everything possible to eliminate the symptoms. Just like you take, you take uh, painkillers to get rid of the pain, but if you want to get rid of the root, what we have to do is recognize the revelatory light within the black hole, the revelatory light within the symptom. And how do we do that? We look at the darkness of our lives. We look at the fact that this world does not see reality as an opportunity, as a challenge for us to be ingenious like that child and find God, find truth, find soul, find love. So it's not just that we're looking for love in a a hostile world. We're looking for unity in a fragmented universe. We're looking for, 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 for peace, in a uh, divisive and and um, what's the word? Uh, and a uh, uh, duplicitous world, that of course is deeper than that. Our search for love, our search for unity, our search for truth, our search for soul, our search for God, is exactly the antidote, because it challenges the whole purpose of the symptom of the darkness which is only to bring that out, that we should be wise enough and bring out that light. Which is why, when the Jews were in Egypt, it says in the verse, Kashayano Esam, as they were oppressed, in direct proportion, direct proportion, they blossomed and flourished and thrived. Why? Because they understood. They didn't say, oh, we're broken. Oh, we'll, we'll lie down and die. The, neg- the hiding, the concealment of God and the pain they went through brought out the best in them and they blossomed and thrived. Now, of course, we'd rather blossom and thrive without that challenge. But when it does come, we never see it as an end in itself. So when you see a person who suffered and they may be justifiably depressed, justifiably resigned, given up hope, and I'm not judging anybody, but the true goal is, is to show them that whatever you went through, there's a deeper light hidden in there. But it's so concealed because the sucking, the power, the gravitational power of the concealment of that parent concealing himself, or the teacher 
being silent and allowing the space for the student is so powerful that if you are able to see through and not buy into the illusion of the darkness, you actually can achieve and reach greatest levels of light. And I'll take it a step further. This is so vital in its own mysterious way to the big purpose of existence and the purpose of our lives that God himself says, I will, be, I will tolerate even cruel acts because it's the only way that the concealment is going to be real. So it's not justification for cruelty and it's not explanation. It's saying because the gain of the light that comes through darkness is more powerful than the light that itself and to the point it's more powerful than the pain involved in cruelty. And that's why we firmly believe and you can even understand it logically that at the end of the day goodness is more powerful than evil. Because evil is just the absence of light. That's been misunderstood and turned into, unfortunately, real evil acts. So again, we, we fight the symptoms. But you get to the root is understanding that that darkness, that allowed space for that, that independence, that allowed space for someone to misunderstand and distort and ultimately become a selfish person and hurt others individually or collectively and, and destroy instead of build has a lot, tremendous light in it. So every time you resist selfishness, every time you resist temptation, every time you resist something that your own narcissistic voice inside of you demands, you're not just being a good person. You're not just being a nice person. You're actually, you know what you're doing? You're fulfilling the very purpose of existence because you're not buying into the concealment and saying, I'm buying into it and that's my reality. You're saying, no, I don't accept it. I protest. And you protest by bringing light even when there's darkness. It's one of the most important lessons in life and one that can empower us to deal with anything that comes our way. Now, obviously, as I mentioned, once you're in the throes of the abyss, in the throes under the tentacles of pain, it's very difficult to speak this way because emotions take over. That's why we have to prepare in the years of plenty for the years of famine, as Joseph taught us. That when things are more peaceful, when we're not overtly challenged, or we're not overwhelmed. Think about this. Build up your resources. We'd build up resources before the storm strikes. The, the powerful tree that withstands a storm doesn't become powerful in the storm. It was powerful before. So when the storm strikes, the roots are deep, and it's powerful. The trees that have not been reinforced are the ones that are going to fall. Same thing with a ship. You can't reinforce a ship once the storm strikes. So our goal is when we are in like a position like now, and this is why the holiday Passover comes, says every year, recreate the experience. Why should we recreate the pain that they went through? Whether it's through eating bitter herbs or telling the story. They went through it. You know, once is enough and that's that. Now let's celebrate the celebration. Because the point is not just to empathize, not just to um, identify with our ancestors, it's actually the lesson that they went through is a lesson for us that we also go through Mitzrayim, which comes from the word constraints, all limitations, all inhibitions, all addictions, all fears, all insecurities. You fill in the blanks. That we are recreating it and living it every day and we imagine ourselves going through that situation in the conceptual sense, in the psychological Mitzrayim sense, with the purpose being to reveal much deeper because Mitzrayim, the constraints, mina from the word Mitzrayim, from the dire straits, 
I call out to you, and what happens? And God answers in expansiveness. Because when you call from pain, when you call from constraints, your cry is much deeper. It's like a dam. When there's resistance, it builds up the power. When there's a concealment, it brings up, builds up the resources, the ingenuity, the drive to fight that darkness. And that was the driving force of every great man and woman in history. If you want to know their greatness, you don't look when things are good. When they were challenged, what happened? They became stronger. Not just because they're strong people, because they saw the challenge itself as part of the process. They did not get deceived. They didn't allow themselves to become emotionally overwhelmed, as painful as it was. They looked deeper and they realized even this darkness has purpose. And if I don't see the purpose today, it'll be tomorrow. If not tomorrow, the next day. And with that vision, you're able to deal with anything. Because you're not consumed and you're not overwhelmed by the moment. You see there's a bigger story. You may not see it, but you believe it. And you prepare, as I said, in the times of plenty. So it's really understanding the black hole of evil. The black hole of existence that in truth is just a darkness that is very powerful light, just inverted. Symptom inverted. And our goal is to exvert it. I don't know if that's a word. To extrovert it, to extract it. And tap it and transform it. Not to bypass it, not to surrender to it, but to transform it. And we transform it in a simple way. Right now, each one of us. Every moment in our lives you have the choice. Am I going to take care of myself or am I going to help another person? Am I going to be kind or am I going to be selfish? Am I going to be destructive or am I going to be productive? And I can understand that the resources and gifts blessed my wealth, my intelligence, my all the resources, all the faculties I are here to help make the world a better place, or just about me, me, me. This choice you make is the difference between feeding the symptoms darkness, the black hole, or fighting it. Or I would say not even fighting it, actually redeeming it, freeing it from that trap, because that's what it wants. The whole darkness is only to bring out the light, like I said before. So you're either going to buy into it and be deceived, which is sad, or you say, no, I won't be deceived. This darkness is only meant to bring out even a greater light. So we talk about protection from evil. Protection from evil can be symptomatic. And that's, you know, you put on armor, you, put, you, you lock your doors, you have burglar, burglar alarms and other types of security systems walls around you, that will protect from actual attack. And it's also not always perfect. And then there's another type of protection. Preemptive action. Preventive medicine. Get to the root of it that there won't be someone there to attack in the first place. Now, of course, we have to be not naive. It's not like if you fight the symptom and you continuously bring light everybody else's, but when we do it, we weaken the hold of the symptom. You become part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that has a ripple effect, a butterfly effect. Using another example from physics, that affects everybody else. Now, it may not happen overnight, but remember thousands of years that we've been doing this. So when you fight and win your small battles, you ultimately in some way weaken the hold of the black hole, the hold of the concealment, because you've shown in action and in thought and in speech and in your behavior that you're not buying into the darkness and the concealment. You realize it's a, catapult, a, a catalyst for greater growth. It has even more light and you do everything possible to reveal that light.
And you think of it that way. It's the destiny of your life and the life of your loved ones when you think that way. And that's what happens on Passover night. We recreate the story, including the pain. We don't, we don't, we don't hide. We're not in denial. We're not escaping. We look at it in, squarely, head on, and we defang the enemy by understanding the enemy. As we, as we all know, fear and most psychological enemies are much more powerful because they are concealed. They hide their presence. When you don't see the enemy, you can never know how bad is it, how strong the enemy is. You can have a very small enemy, but the enemy makes a lot of noise. Or your own nightmares and your own paranoia exaggerates and amplifies the enemy's power. That's why psychological warfare is so important. Because if I can convince the enemy, my enemy, that I'm more powerful than I am, that weakens their resolve. It demoralizes them. Same thing is psychologically. When you are unaware of the causes, then there's much to fear. But when you can cut through the, cut through the curtains and dissect the anatomy of it, get to the soul, so to speak, of the root of this type of behavior, you ultimately defang it. First of all, you're more aware. So once you're more aware, you're always in a better position. Number two, the enemy of darkness is light. So the child, let's say, continues to search and does not give up. And ultimately they get a hint that they see something, they see their parent. That itself weakens the whole hiding of the parent. As long as you buy into that their hiding is more powerful than your ability to find them, then of course you're feeding that illusion. As soon as you say, no, I'm going to find that. I may take time. I may need more, more, more patience, more creativity. You have, in effect, weakened the hold of that concealment. So we have that power, each in our own small way. And ultimately, we believe firmly that we can tip the, ba- the, the scales. We can tip the balance, the tipping point, where others will also, it'll rub off on others, it'll affect others. It's an attitude. So Pesach, this is the story we tell our children, Passover. This is the story we tell ourselves. We talk about the whole story. That means Haggadah is telling this story. And we're talking about not just protecting by building armor, defensive mechanisms, but we're talking about an offensive way that will preempt, be the ultimate protection because it won't allow something in the first place. And even when something comes in that's negative, you say, I'm not going to fight negativity with negativity. I will not allow myself to become tit for tat. I will do what I need to do to protect myself and my loved ones. But psychologically, I am not going to become like you. I'm not, we may suffer, but I will not become a sufferer. And you fight the battle on both fronts, on the defensive front, but on the offensive front, by defanging, by looking deeper and realizing that there's a force behind us that is far stronger than the darkness. And we refree that and redeem it by acting on it, by becoming better people, by making a decision and resolutions on Passover, that I will find ways to emancipate myself and others, be more compassionate, be more giving, bring more light in your life. And that is not just dispels the darkness, it disarms the darkness. It disarms it from its power of illusion of its psychological power to make us think that it is an end in itself when it's not. So the interesting thing is that this lies in our hands. 
It's not something anyone can do for you. If you buy into it, then unfortunately you're feeding it. If you don't, you um, weaken it. Everybody knows the Wizard of Oz. So when they come in the first time, the Wizard of Oz is this little guy behind a curtain. But they don't know that. And he's projecting this image and they all get frightened. That's an example. And then you find out, here it is, it's just a force that's just hiding behind the curtain. Or other such science fiction analogies. There's an analogy in Star Trek, one of the shows, I believe, was where fear fed an enemy. The more fearful they were, the stronger the enemy became. Now, these are deep concepts, but they're also very psychological war- warfare concepts. And all this is really lies at the heart of this 3,331th anniversary from when the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, Egypt. It's over 3,300 exactly 3,331 years ago. Imagine that. And we've been reliving it and recreating it, and we're here to tell the story. That means we did not allow that darkness and subsequent darknesses to overcome us, to vanquish us. And what happened to those darknesses? They don't exist today. The Egyptians, yes, there's a country called Egypt. It's not Egypt of old. There's a country called Rome, a city called Rome. It's not Rome of old, Persia Empire, Greek Empire, Assyrian Empire. The the list goes on. The Spanish Empire. They're all countries today, small countries. Because what prevails is always going to be the deeper light, not the blackness. The blackness is there on the surface level, and it's strong. But see it through, and you'll see who prevails. And we'll say it in the Haggadah night, we'll say, not just in the time of Egypt, in every generation, they rose above us and tried to annihilate us. But you, Hashem, God, saved us from their hands. What is the God meaning here? Not just God's miracle, it's also the God within us, God empowering us with that type of element of faith and trust and allowing us to have a power that's greater than what we look at the outside. That connection... And if, I, if you ever need an explanation for a God, the connection to God is what allows us to rise above darkness. I always think about it. How does a person who feels they're an atheist or an agnostic deal with true pain? Where do they get the resilience, the power from? Because we know you can't correct a system from within a system. So when you do see deeper strengths in a person like that, okay, they may not want to call it God, but it's definitely not coming from the human part. Because the human part is where the, is where the weakness is, where the fear is. It's coming from a part that allows us to dream, allows us to raise our eyes to heaven and think of a greater world, a more beautiful world, even when we're in the darkest place. So call it whatever name you want to call it, but it's a power that, of transcendence that's greater than we are. And that's the meaning of Pesach, Passover. To pass over what? To pass over our constraints, our narrow perspectives, our myopic vision, and our, and, our, and our delusion of thinking that blackness and darkness is an end in itself. And really realizing it's an absence of light. It's an absence of seeing beneath the surface of what is driving that darkness. Everything is energy. It's black energy or it's white energy. It's light or it's dark, but it's all energy. Just a question with the energy, how the energy manifests. Whether it's sucking in or it's expressing And then our job is to tap into it and redeem it and allow it to transform us and the world around us.
when you look at anyone who's gone through healing and recovery, the, even the worst scenarios, worst form of dysfunctionality and abuse and hurt, you'll see one formula that always is the key. When they begin to discover there's a power greater than themselves, they begin to hold on to it and it helps them lift them up and fight whatever it was that kept them hostage. And then you see greater strengths come out that you never see in a regular person. Why? We all rather have a regular life because they dug deeper. They did exactly this, the Passover lesson, the message, that the more oppressed, the more you thrive. That's because you can tap into the darkness. It's not just that you connect to something greater and you can ignore the darkness. You're actually tapping into whatever caused it to be dark. Now, the most important thing to remember, this is not a justification. So the person who's abused, the abuser will say, you know what, thank me. I'm the one that brought you this great light. No, 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 no. Al-Hamazik, the person who did the crime, like he says in Tanya, will get there, be accountable for Reb Chirosi for his bad choices, evil choices. But you have learned the lesson. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and that was not justifiable. They did a wrong thing. But Joseph did not feed into bitterness. He said, God did this to me, not you. He did this to me in order to be Lemichia, to bring sustenance to you and to my family and to our people. The whole, uh, uh, whole exile in Egypt, you could say, well, began in a bad way, but it ended up creating a great people. That would not have been possible had it not been there. So we don't see that as an end in itself, and we don't glorify and deify and worship the darkness, but we look at it and say, what does it mean for me, and what, what does it do for me? So those that perpetrated the darkness, they will get theirs. We're not t- talking about, they are not partners in the benefits, because they did something with bad intention, and they bought into the darkness. They allowed themselves to be victims of the darkness and feed off of it and do destructive things as a result of feeling that they're independent entities. And they can do whatever they want. Basically worshipping themselves as gods. But for the person who's, who was on the receiving end realizes that besides that protecting myself, the ultimate protection is I become so powerful. Nothing. That's what doesn't kill me makes me stronger because I feed off of the darkness because I realize that the darkness is really light. A deeper light. Again, not for the person who did it, because they have bought into the darkness, not into the light. But we will not buy into the darkness. That's the story of Passover, in a nutshell. It's a tremendous lesson in life of how to look at evil, how to deal with evil, how to deal with pain and loss and challenges, how to come, come out a much stronger individual. Of course, this is a topic that deserves a lot more but I hope I gave a good overview and some food for thought. As always, I invite your comments, your feedback, your thoughts. Please go to MeaningfulLife.com where this is broadcast every, every week, a new broadcast, and then it's archived. Share, the, share this with friends. Please be partners with us in bringing this message because we need each other to fight, to recognize, not just to fight. Because it's not a war against darkness, it's the recognition of what its true nature is. It's a very different approach than a war. And a little light dispels a lot of darkness for this reason. Why? When it comes to fire and water, they're equal ad- adversaries. Why? Enough fire can extinguish 
a large body, uh, can evaporate a large body of water, enough water can extinguish the largest fires. And they go to battle when they meet. Light, a little light. Why? Without any effort. You may need a lot of light for a very dark room. But in the area where the light is shining, it automatically dispels. Because there's no such thing as real powerful darkness. Even though, even according to the opinion, like in Egypt, they were able to touch darkness. That there is an opinion that darkness is not just the absence of light. It is actually an entity. But even that entity, the Tzimtzum is also an entity. It's not an illusion. It's an entity, but it's not an end in itself. Even if it's an entity, as a matter of fact, being an entity and not just an absence makes it even more conducive to being transformed. You can't transform an absence, a void. You can eliminate a void. So however you look at darkness, even if it's tangible and palpable, its purpose is light. And that's why light automatically dispels darkness. So we take that attitude in our lives and share it, as I said, be partners with us. We must do this together. Because every little bit of light that each one of us brings accumulates, and that creates the ripple effect. And we can reach a critical mass, and we can reach the tipping point and, and change the course of history. It's already been changed. Look how much light there is in the world today compared to the past. How much charity, how much giving. There's still challenges, not just denying it. But we live in a much, much more humanitarian, much more kind and compassionate world. But still, the symptom is still looming. It still has its effects. We all fall and we all are, 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 uh, are victims of it or um, products of it. So we have to continue the battle. We have to continue freeing ourselves, freeing the symptom even of its own self. And it will thank us. Because the purpose of the hiding and the concealment was only to reveal, not to conceal. So, my friends, I want to wish everybody very kosher and freilich and Pesach. Most importantly, an emancipating, freeing, liberating holiday. Liberation in the real personal sense of anything, any of your mitzrayims, your constraints, your symptoms, your darkness, your fears, inhibitions, anything that traps you. Go into the holiday thinking about something of that nature. Think of something you'd like to change, something you'd like to be freed of, a fear, a resistance, an avoidance, whatever it is. And look at the Seder as a process, as a literally a process, a 15-step program. As I have on, online, there's great resources to help make your Seder much more meaningful and personal. We have a 15-step guide, the original 15-step guide to freedom that goes through the 15 steps. You can download it. A bunch of articles on the different steps of the Seder, the four cups of wine, the three matzahs, the Seder plate, the four questions, many aspects of it. You can really use it as a workbook that can enhance your Seder. If you're hosting a Seder for sure, even if as it comes as a, come as a guest, you can provoke. The whole idea of the evening is to provoke, ask questions, questions, the narrative, the story. So you have material that you can use to actually enliven the Seder. So you're more, they're more than just a guest. You're actually participating and can help enhance. And, um, and, and feel free to access those resources. So everyone have a very freeing Passover and we will see each other. Not Next week will not be a program because of the holiday. In two weeks from now. And it's always an honor and blessing as we enter this month of redemption, this holiday of redemption, to talk about these ideas, to share and to act and to implement and bring it into our personal lives.
Again, everyone have a very happy and freeing holiday. Thank you.